0: Hi, I'm Simon Talbot.
1: And I'm Wendy Dean.
0: And this is Moral Matters.
1: So today we're going to be talking with Carlina Rivera, and she is one of only 12 women on the New York City Council, and she's the chair of the hospital's
0: subcommittee. So uh, Carlina doesn't have a medical background, but she's worked very hard for quite some time with all of her staff to try and find novel approaches and solutions to some of the really difficult problems that we face in healthcare.
1: What I think comes through really powerfully is how um, how she cares so much about her constituents and how what she's trying to do in the hospital system is to make sure that she takes care not only of her staff, but also the people in the community and how important it is for those two entities, those those two pieces to work tightly together. Absolutely. Let's take a listen.
0: Well, uh, hello and welcome back. Uh, Today, Wendy and I are speaking with Councilwoman Carlina Rivera. um, And uh, welcome to the podcast, Carlina.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I guess we should start um, with a little background. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your role on the New York City Council?
2: Absolutely. So I am a New York City Council member in a 51-member body, proudly representing the five boroughs and i am the chair of the committee on hospitals in the city council and so this has been um, quite a, a, a challenging journey uh, throughout the past few years i never would have imagined that i'd be chair of the hospitals committee in in a pandemic but i always had the intention of holding hearings through my charter mandated responsibility of oversight an investigation on issues related to health care, specifically in our hospital system, and really, really holding up our public hospital system, which is the largest in the country.
1: So how many people does that public hospital system serve?
2: That's a great question, actually, in terms of how many that they serve. I would say in a, a city of almost 9 million, they're serving the majority of New Yorkers because they have an open door policy unlike any other. Now, you can enter a hospital like NYU or New York Presbyterian and receive, of course, amazing care, quality care. I would say that our public hospital system also delivers world-class care, but there is just um, an acknowledgement here in New York City that regardless of who you are, whether you are a citizen or even undocumented, you could walk into those doors of a New York City public hospital system, health and hospitals, H&H, and really get anything that that you need, have your questions answered, and really be served, I think, in a way that is culturally humble, unlike most institutions.
0: That's great. Thank you. So, uh, Carlina, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you decided to run for this position?
2: Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, well, so I am from my community, born and raised where I represent in the Lower East Side. And I actually never really imagined that I would be an elected official or I guess in politics, as they say. But um, I've always been involved on a on a community level. So I was raised by a single mom in Section 8 housing, and she was someone who would bring us to local meetings. Maybe there was the the precinct meeting where you would talk with the local police the tenant association meeting, or just making sure that we really had our fingers on the pulse of some of the issues that were going on. And this was, you know, in the 80s where drugs were a serious issue in my community. There was the crack epidemic. Um, You know, I had my own own family members that kind of fell into into that. And um, she just wanted to make sure that she could raise her two girls in a neighborhood where we could walk down the streets and be really proud because it has an amazing history. And my family came here from Puerto Rico They technically landed in Brooklyn, in Bushwick, um, but she came to the Lower East Side for my dad. So I always kind of had that um, in me, like to be aware of my surroundings. But later on in life, I would join my community board. I would work at a local community-based organization called Good Lower East Side, which provided social services and community organizing. And I would be a part of local community campaigns that would lead me to meet my predecessor who would really encourage me to run, a number of people encouraged me to run. Um, I think that as women, and one thing I didn't mention is that I'm one of only 12 women in the city council in a 51 member body. Um, I think we, I don't know why we don't run as often, but I'm hoping to, to change that with this election coming up. Um, but when I did, I, I, uh, I had a great um, network of support. And I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad that I'm representing my community and specifically that I was really given the honor to to be the chair of of the Hospitals Committee, which is probably the one thing that every single person has in common, which is what they want, access to quality health care. So right before I was elected, I was working, doing healthy aging programming and community organizing with people in my community. So it made a lot of sense, but clearly there is a a learning curve. This is a complicated, bureaucratic uh, type of thing to navigate. But luckily I have experts that come in and teach me a little something every day.
1: It's a great story. Um so you really you you've had you've had um community awareness in your background for a long time, which is really super. And your it sounds like your mom was a great role model.
2: She's pretty great. She's uh it's funny, she, um, you know, we always were proud to vote. We don't consider our, we don't consider ourselves like a political family, but I always tell people we would, uh, my family would dress up three times in life, like it was to go to church, to get on a plane, or to go vote. And so that was just because those are three things that we considered a, a privilege and an honor and something that was very community minded.
1: It's a great story. So, um, you mentioned earlier the, uh, the challenge that New York in particular has faced beginning in March. And I remember being there, um, at the very end of February, I had a meeting, um, down on the East side and, um, everything was normal. And then three weeks later, um, we were extricating our kid from college there. And literally, um, in an hour, we turned around and drove in, turned around and got got him out. And I wonder if you could just describe for us the first day that you knew what was coming for New York. And especially as the chairman of the Committee on Hospitals, what that was like for you.
2: That's a great question because I I remember leading into, into March, it was actually in late February, I had a hearing about the title was, is is New York City Health and Hospitals Ready for the Coronavirus? And I had a lot of confidence in our hospital system, and I still do. I still think they moved mountains, that they did an incredible job. You know, hindsight is always 20-20, right? I think I would have asked a different set of questions. I would have asked things along the line of You know, keeping services up that are not necessarily COVID related. I would have asked about field hospitals and beds and, you know, how that that disparity with how many beds per people living in Manhattan versus people living in an outer borough and how that has changed over the years dramatically. But I think I, I really knew, and it's, it's, it's like a weird kind of story, but we were, we were getting towards, we were moving towards mid-March, right? We were still in the beginning. And I just kept reading as much as I could, trying to absorb as much information. And for some reason, it came up that they were going to still have the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And I know that's a kind of like March 17th, that's like a random date to remember, but I just remember thinking we're still going to have one of the largest gatherings that we see in New York City when we know this is a highly infectious, really dangerous um, disease that is going to hit a city that is here in a city of, of over 8 million with people with all sorts of vulnerabilities and underlying conditions. And I was like, we can't, we can't do this. I was like, we absolutely can't do this. It sounds, it sounds insane. And I, I, I remember I, I, I think I tweeted out we we can't do this. Or I, I, I released something and I was talking to my communications director because it's interesting, you know, when you're working in this, in this kind of industry, things are very territorial. Everyone has a lane, everyone wears different hats. So I was like, oh, my God, we have to call the Irish caucus. Right. Like, there's no time. There's no time for that. This is you. If you've ever been in New York City on St. Patrick's Day and you are on Fifth Avenue, it is messy for a number of reasons. Right. Is it a good time? Absolutely. Everybody's (laughs) Irish for one day. (laughs) But it is not, it is, it is, it is a, a terrible environment for what we, what was here and what we were about to encounter. And I remember saying, this is really, really serious. We're going to have to start shutting things down. I was talking to Dr. Katz. He's the CEO of Health and Hospitals. And we, I was saying, well, what about the schools? We probably have to shut down the schools. And I remember him telling me very early on, I'm really concerned about the bars. So there were things happening and conversations being had where I thought, Well, if this is the head of the largest public hospital system in the country saying we absolutely have to shut things down, not sure what's going to be on the list, but it's getting longer and longer with every hour and day that passes. I knew things like canceling a parade were a no brainer. And in fact, we had to talk about shutting down things that were related to childcare and 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 jobs and all the things that were really going to affect us in a way that clearly we couldn't really have um described
1: that sounds like a pretty um sobering realization uh because i remember the week before that and on march 16th i picked up my son from new york and i remember having conversations with him in the week prior saying we need to pick you up and he kept saying no no i'm okay it's all good um and finally the 16th we were able to say okay now is the deadline it's time to go um so one of the things that um i've been surprised by is in your the hearing some of the hearings that you've had you have talked about this concept of moral injury even prior to the pandemic and i wonder how um your position as the chairman of the hospitals committee um how you relate to uh, your staff well-being and how you feel like, you know, why that concept of moral injury even comes up for you.
2: I realize that when it comes to mental health care for health care workers and that idea of, of, of moral injury, clearly, you know, for, for my staff, I think about it all the time. A lot of people commonly... They don't really know how to measure moral injury. Um, we, you always, you know, you use words like self-care and have a balance, but it is very, very different in, in this context when it comes to the pandemic. I think for, you know, for I guess my own staff was the question: is you know, where I feel like we treat this role. Um, so, so very with the, with the seriousness that it deserves, and so we're constantly reading and researching and having conversations with people, things that will never make Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Just so we can continue to build, and even I think the very idea of moral injury is something that I have also learned a lot about. I think commonly people will call it burnout, and I don't think that that's an adequate enough description. I think when it comes to something as serious as public servants, as healthcare workers, as people who are trying to put forward comprehensive, like holistic solutions, it, it is, I think the, the right term is moral injury. And I think we have to address it in multiple industries, specifically healthcare, uh, because it didn't start with COVID-19. It's not going to disappear after the pandemic ends. And it's something that we typically see more in war with soldiers where, you know, young men and women are forced to make impossible decisions that leave them with deep stress and emotional and mental guilt. Now we know that in hospitals or in places that are understaffed, it can really, really lead to to some serious um, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual issues and disadvantages. And just, um, I tried to address it in the hearing in June, because I think what we saw and what people on the front lines are going through is is something that we, we have to start addressing back then, if not before.
0: Carlina, you mentioned something that was interesting there. Um, a lot of people became aware of this concept and started talking about it more in the setting of COVID-19. But you mentioned that this was clearly going on before COVID nineteen, and will continue after it. Can you talk a little bit about the other things that you see that may have been contributing to this, and the problems that are um, outside COVID nineteen that are contributing to moral injury?
2: Sure. I, you know, now that we know, as I mentioned, I think that was specifically doctors, nurses, medical staff when they're put in these situations. Um, and they're not able to make those decisions to the best of their medical ability. I think the decisions, the, the situations that we saw during the height of COVID, when healthcare workers were having to choose between which patients to save and which to let die is something that we cannot allow to continue. It's dangerous for for patients and staff alike Um you know, we knew that this was happening. We've had the fight for, for safe staffing for nurses, for example, for a really long time. Um, and I think that, you know, nurses are just one group with a, with a very engaged, aggressive uh, union, which is, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And the doctors have one too, they, they all do, and, and the people inside the hospital. Um, but I, I think we saw it um you can look at some of the statistics right four in ten physicians they report feelings of burnout the physician's suicide rate is more than double that of the general population Um, in addition the rate of nurse suicide is increasing and there are ways that we have to address that and some of these these quote-unquote solutions have been something that people have been pushing pre-pandemic i mentioned passing real safe staffing laws Mm-hmm. Um, ensuring that mental health care for staff goes beyond access or, or availability, that, that hospital administrators, that they're exploring how to create real time and space for all staff needs. And that mental health care comes to them. It's not something that they have to actively seek or navigate in a bureaucracy. And I think that we have to ensure that in real emergency situations, we provide healthcare care workers with clear direction and that leadership shows that they're accountable for the failures that are outside of the staff's control. Like if there's an, as we saw in the pandemic, an, an inadequate number of ventilators, not enough doses of a new medication, or, or even enough beds as, as, as tragically um, we were faced with. So I think, you know, pass, pass laws that allow for patients to more easily and readily access healthcare instead of waiting until an emergency situation is something that helps kind of the entire sector Um, and when I look at what will be better for all of us whether you're working in the hospital or you're just a consumer you're just a patient you're just a person I think we need to do things like pass the new york health act but even if we can't get support from the governor for that we should be working on other programs to getting insurance to uninsured or underinsured new yorkers because that moral injury happens to a lot of people and, and it affects so many decisions and I'm always looking out for kind of the well-being of our city. I think that's my responsibility.
0: That That's a, that's a great point and it's a point that, that comes up quite a bit when we're talking to people, which I'm just so pleased you mentioned, which is that um, moral injury started out being something that people talked about as being a problem for healthcare workers, be it nurses or doctors or other folks working in the hospital. But the truth is, when they can't do their jobs well, or when they're struggling, the problem transcends them and ends up being a patient care issue. It ends up being something that affects your constituents um, and people all over the country because we're all patients at some time or another. And so um, my next question for you is also tricky. (laughs) What mechanisms do you see or mechanisms that you have um, been able to enact are there out there to raise awareness to the challenges that are going on in healthcare so that the public can be part of this discussion and the public can be part of some of the solutions?
2: Well, the first, one of the first hearings that I held, um, was on the future of psychiatric care in New York city. I know that that's one piece of it, right? But Mm -hmm. I thought that that was important and I also wanted to, um, I, it, was a, it was a hearing, and I was co-chairing it with the, the chair of the Mental Health, Disabilities and Substance Abuse Committee, which which kudos to Diana Ayala for taking on what to me is one of the most diverse titles of a committee probably anywhere.
0: <laughs> and a really um, hot job.
2: Yeah. So we did it in Metropolitan Hospital. I wanted to bring a hearing to an actual facility where I knew that they were addressing this, this issue very, very seriously. And where you know some of the statistics are in that community is just, you know El Barrio is kind of historically underserved, even with a public hospital. And we could have, right, a whole other session on the inequities and in funding and how health and hospitals doesn't receive enough money from the state and et cetera. But again, that's not what we're here for. So that was one thing that I said right out the gate. Let me start off with talking about why this happens. You know, when we had um, the hearing that I mentioned in June about moral injury, I want to do another on on mental health care services inside the hospitals, and that kind of goes back to what I just mentioned on on creating a real space for this to happen, not just like a paper that you hand out that says, "Hey, you can you can go talk to someone," but saying, "Hey, this is what we have for you to focus on yourself," and. What I've tried to do in my own community is create spaces for the conversations, because I will tell you that sometimes culturally, there are certain stigmas, there are certain conversations that don't happen, and I don't have to tell a bunch of experts that you know the black and brown communities maybe aren't accessing those services at the same rate as our white counterparts. We're not going to therapy as much. We're not seeing that psychiatrist you know, until sometimes not that it's too late, but that maybe your family member is already kind of in a state where they need serious services. It's like that emergency room example I gave you wait and you wait, and you wait, and then you go get your care in the emergency room when there was so m- many preventative things that we could have done to not put you in that situation. Mm-hmm. So I start right. I always say it's like organizing 101 where you start in your, you should start in your home then you should move to your building, then your block, then your neighborhood, then your city. So that's how I've tried to approach my work in hospitals and specifically what are we doing around mental health and how I could support health in hospitals. And what I try to do even during the pandemic was when we talked about the one system, the public hospitals and then then the other voluntary hospitals, how can we do that better going forward?
1: So I think that's a really good point. One of the things that was critical for New York when the pandemic got really hot was to think about how you could share resources across those boundaries and how you could coordinate across the boundaries of the public hospitals and the voluntary hospitals. Um, And I just I, I wonder if you could just give us a really brief snippet of what that was like and what what was required of each side to engage in that crossing those boundaries that don't always get crossed
2: i want to say that i can you know write a position paper on lessons learned and how it's going to be much better with the second wave i don't feel as confident in saying that we truly did work as one system. You, we all know that there were reports in late March that patients with COVID-19 system, symptoms, they were showing up at some hospitals every three to five minutes. Right. I think with the hospitals facing a steady flow of, of patients, I think a doctor in Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, which made international news, described conditions to the New York Times as apocalyptic and said that patients had died while awaiting treatment. And that happened probably in every hospital. But I think that with shortages of personal protective equipment, right? I guess everyone knows that acronym by now, but with shortages of PPE throughout the system, the hospital system, there were reports of some healthcare workers having to resort to wearing trash bags or, or rain ponchos to protect themselves from the virus. And the city's paramedics were reportedly, they were stretched so thin trying to respond to the increase in calls during the peak of the crisis that they were told to leave cardiac arrest sufferers at home if they did not have a pulse. I think, you know, we eventually would even bring in the Department of Defense. Um, They brought in military doctors who'd experienced moral injury firsthand to provide health and hospitals with, and I kid you not, quote unquote, combat stress management and resilience training to handle the challenges that they were facing. While all that ultimately was probably necessary, maybe not the trash bags and the rain ponchos, but I do think that that was because once again, the health and hospital system faced unprecedented, disproportionate situations and challenges during the pandemic that just their other counterparts did not. And while I thought when I watched, you know, one of those like Cuomo press conferences, which were, you know, you know executed very well, and I saw Greater New York Hospital Association, which is kind of like this umbrella organization of all the hospitals here in New York, and I, and I saw the head of that next to Cuomo, I thought, okay, maybe this is really going to happen. Maybe there's gonna be like a true coordination. And I just don't think it was there. Now everyone has the reserve, right? They have the 60 day reserve of PPE, but that's the law. I'm just wondering whether or not we have put in place the services so that way we do not see those videos again that broke our hearts of not just the stretchers in the hallway, but the nurses and the doctors breaking down from what they witnessed.
1: And putting everyone else in the hospital system at risk as well. The transportation folks, the the cleaning crews, the food staff. The hospital doesn't run just on doctors and nurses.
2: That's right.
1: So... It's clear that you're pretty passionate about making sure that New York Health and Hospitals are are, um, a great place to work, that they take really good care of their staff and, by extension, take really good care of their patients. So how how can we help, we as staff, as the public, as um, doctors and nurses and other folks in healthcare, how can we help you? to help us?
2: I always like this question, you know, (laughs) when people ask, how can we help? Um, Well, one is I think, you know, maybe people didn't necessarily, and I I can say this confidently in the beginning of my term, is that in my committee, people didn't, um, I had good attendance in in my committee from my fellow colleagues but they weren't maybe thinking about this issue, the way that they're thinking about it now. And I think what I've always done in every hearing is, is to have, I've had brilliant people come and testify. I remember I had someone come and testify. She flew in from Texas to talk about data and electronic medical records. It was very like interesting topic that turned into Um, something very, very kind of complicated and, you know, I don't know if anyone, some people know that some people don't is that our medical data is like the number one hacked type of information. So there's some topics where I've seen some interest, um, kind of randomly, I think generally though, keeping the information out there, keeping people continuing to talk about why the financial structure of our hospital system is so inequitable. What can we do? What can you all do? Well, we can continue to organize. I always think that's important. I think we have to continue to advocate. You we want to be careful. We don't want to call it lobbying, because there's lobbyists for that. Mm-hmm. But um I think that we have to continue to advocate, you know, um really our governor, our mayor, our state Senate, our state assembly, or whatever is the structure that kind of governs your community, your city, your state, um, that is going to be important ongoing. If we just had a little more equity, a little more equity in the way that some of these dollars reach our systems with the, with the really plain realization of who they serve, I think we would have been in a much, much better place. So I think for, for people there to just to continue to and I know that, you know, blowing the whistle is a hard is, is difficult because there's the risk of losing your job. There's the risk of alienating your your colleagues. Um, I'm trying to be responsible. I'm trying to fulfill my obligation in responding to some of those concerns on people who blew the whistle in places like Elmhurst. Right. right. So I think just continuing to discuss some of the issues that are um Um, inside the hospital and some of them are going to be really tough to talk about and making sure that we're all doing this kind of collectively and you know it's just that advocacy that organizing that i think will be continue to be important and then um i really i think the moral injury conversation is finally something that people are understanding because they saw those videos on facebook because they saw those tweets um and that's something that i want to keep shedding a light on because it affects everyone. But I think in this case, this was truly life or death.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I really like that you've said more than once today is this idea of starting in your home, then in your building, then on your block. So one of the things we frequently say is, shrink the change that you wanna make and make it personal, local, and possible. And I think um, it, it, would be, it would be great if we can encourage people um, in that direction. But I wonder, is there, is there a way for them to, because I, I can imagine that data is important for you to have. Is there a way that people can provide data to you?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's, that's so important. I, I, I think when I, for example, that that one, that, that story that i told about the woman coming in from texas i mean she presented so much information on the topic that i hadn't quite you know realized or or, or looked into and that's so important is is bringing us data examples and sure it can be local it can certainly be you know things uh, international examples i'm always looking to other cities and other countries to learn there's certainly i think other countries with um a better healthcare system than we have here that I would love to implement as little or as much as possible. So data is certainly um, helpful. Case studies, whether they're anecdotal, things you've done within your own organization. When I worked at to Lower East Side, I, I partnered with Wild Cornell Medical College to do a survey on on adults in the area over 50, asking them questions about their health. And we would eventually use that. And me, you know, that was my first kind of foray into, into research. Um, we use that information to conduct a sleep study because we found that, you know, out of 100 seniors, they weren't sleeping well. So it can really, you know, I, I want to tell people don't don't think that your organization might be too small to make a difference. It is certainly helpful to have all of that. And whether you might think it's anecdotal, those stories, those case studies those experiences that we can bring and memorialize them and bring them to the public is really important. So thank you for mentioning that, absolutely.
1: Well, I think that's a great place for us to wrap here. Um, Your story matters, like it, it matters to how we bring change and how we make healthcare and hospitals better for all of us. So thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to maybe another conversation. Thank you, Kalina.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: So what we hope is that what uh, today's podcast is, is a small window into some of the challenges of managing a pandemic from the local government side of things, from the regulatory side of things, from the council side of things.
1: Yeah. And that it's, it's not a simple matter of making a decision and moving forward. It takes negotiation. It takes voices from various parts of the community to come together and agree to the steps forward.
0: But as uh, Carlina mentions uh, several times, it's about starting small and local and doing the things that are manageable before working up into the things that are more complicated and more difficult.
1: Yeah. And, and that it really helps, um, when, The people who are making those decisions can have data that that really can speak to the decision that has to be made or that can support a choice. And so, whatever we can do as members of the community, as members of the healthcare team, to offer that data to the folks who are in the decision making positions, the better off we'll be.
0: And your voices are really important. So, we're going to be including uh, Carlina Rivera's contact information in the show notes uh, for you to get hold of her if need be. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. You can continue the conversation on our website, fixmoralinjury.org. On Facebook
1: at Moral Injury of Healthcare, Instagram at Moral Injury, or on Twitter at WDNMD and Simon Talbot, MD. If
0: you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to upcoming episodes. You need to rate us online and review it so it's easier for others to find us. Finally, if you're looking for end of year giving ideas, please consider donating something to support the podcast and the rest of the work that we're doing at Moral Injury of Healthcare. Donate in the name of your favorite healthcare worker is a great gift as well.
1: And join us next time when we'll be talking to Ed Tufaro, who is the Senior Vice President of Operations at the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. We'll talk about the early days of the first COVID surge in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Tri-State area. And we're talking to him from an administrator's perspective, how he negotiated the balance between keeping his organization healthy and protecting both their staff and their patients. So we hope to see you then.
0: See you next time.